One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon and Time, is back for another round. Season 2 of McCartney, A Life in Lyrics, debuts February 7th. We have more insightful conversations between myself, Paul Muldoon, and Paul McCartney about his life and career. I was with our roadie, Mal, and he said, will you pass the salt and pepper? And I misheard him. <laughs> I said, what? Sergeant Pepper. This season, we're diving deep into some of McCartney's most beloved songs. Yesterday, Band on the Run, Hey Jude. And McCartney's favourite song in his catalogue, Here, There and Everywhere. I like the line... Look at those kind of lyrics now and sort of think, where did that come from? Mm-hmm. It says a lot in a line. Welcome this week's Winlay with Fab. I'm Ed Chan. And I'm Martin Quibell. Just the two of us after a couple of weeks with the Threedles together. Yep, just the two of us, but we're not building castles in the sand. And we're not spending someone's hard-earned pay except our own. Any money is gratefully received. <laughs> Big news in the Beatle world. Yes, yes. What's that then, Ed? Go on. Last week, from our perspective, on the 16th of February... We learned that McCartney's 61 Hofner has been returned to Paul McCartney. Yes, definitely. Interesting story, though, because everybody assumed that he'd gone missing in 1969. The last time anyone ever saw it publicly was in that storage room and get back. Nick from Winter of Discontent has put out a really good short episode of the history of that base, if anybody's interested. And there's a really good story with the Hofner guy available. It's in English, but it's in a Dutch-based publication. I'm surprised at the story of it going, because it went missing on the tour van, did it, for the Wings Over Europe tour or the University Tour of England. I mean, before we get into that, uh, the one thing I did want to mention out of that article is that they have received several false leads, including the one that... I thought was real for all this time, the fellow who had it in Canada and in the United States and offered to sell it back to MPL. So that base does actually exist, and that fellow did think that it was the real one, but it was actually not. 
Dear me, naughty man. If it's a 61 left-hander, you're going to think it's the real thing. How many people have left-handed, oftener violin basses? From 1961? Yes. So as to the story of where it actually went, um, it was loaded up onto the tour van for the Wings 1972 tour across England, the, the college campus tour. That, to me, is surprising because I thought he was using the Rickenbacker, so why would he have that and? Maybe that was his backup bass. During all the Beatle tours, that was always his backup bass. What was his backup bass? He was playing the 64, and the 61 was there uh, as his backup. Okay. okay. If he broke a string or whatever, mm-hmm. and maybe that's just kind of the habit he got into. Two very different sounding basses, though, the Rickenbacker and the uh, the Hofner. But anyway, so he loaded it into the van. There was no place on their own street to park, so they parked at a nearby pub, apparently. Well, which which you would do, and then they uh, they probably imbibed a few drinks, maybe. They locked up the van and it, you know safely parked, and yes, I I would guess that they did probably imbibe a few. As you do. Then they walked home and they went back the next day to get the van and start things up, and they discovered that the lock had been broken. The sixty one Hofner had disappeared, and a couple of amps had also disappeared. Right. I wonder if they're going to get the amps back next. A nice box AC-30. That was the beginning of this story. Right. And so, for all those years, the fella gave it to one son who died. Then he gave it to another son who died of COVID, I believe. Right. Dear me. I don't think the base was cursed. Maybe stealing the base was cursed. Yep. There's a new horror franchise for people <laughs> there. Cursed instruments. <laughs> I know what your base did last night. Yeah. <laughs> Nightmare on Offner Street. <laughs> the point is that really for the last 50-odd years, it's been under Paul's nose. It's been in and out of apartment complexes just right around that pub. The mystery of Sir Paul's favorite instrument now being pieced together for the first time. I think it's a bit like a jigsaw, really. All thanks to investigative journalists Scott and Naomi Jones. Late last year, they teamed up with Nick Wass from Hofner Instruments, launching thelostbase.com. Their dogged research finding it was stolen in 1972 before changing hands. That base, the most important base in the history of rock and roll, the most important base in the history of music, actually changed hands in a London pub for a couple of quid and some free beer. Turns out the guitar stayed in that same family and just 10 miles or so from the music megastar all this time. As news of the search grew louder, they turned it in. This intrepid team found out in a phone call from McCartney himself. What was that moment like? This guy comes on the phone saying, hey, hey, Nick, we've got the bass. Um, We found it. It's been handed in. We've got the bass. And I'm thinking, who's this idiot? But you know who it was. It was Paul. And he he phoned me up to tell me they they actually got the bass. McCartney grateful for all the sleuthing and that the bass was back in his hands. I always had faith that I would find it. But sometimes I also thought, well, you know, this thing's been gone so long uh, and nobody's ever seen it. And I did did often wonder if I was crazy, you know, for looking for it. <laughs> the mystery over. The guitar back to where it always belonged. Savannah Sellers, NBC News. It had been forgotten about, and it was 
just stored and kind of left to rot in this loft. Something you're familiar with, the relatives came to clean out this loft and, well, gee, this looks interesting. What's this old musical instrument that's probably done nothing for the last 50 years? Probably 30 or 40, because it, it did apparently get used in some gigs in the interim, not by Sir Paul. Right. It got a little play, but I would say it's probably more like 25 or 30 since anyone has really been able to do anything. The neck is broken and there are several pieces which are in need of repair. Dear me, that's that's awful. Without a good luthier, it was the fate of the instrument. Paul's instruments, he's got professional people that look after his instruments anyway. And that is likely what's going to happen to this Hofner. No doubt. That'll be sorted. Might even get Hoffner's own people onto it. They called up MPL, and that got through to McCartney, and it's like they were able to tell the story, and it's like, okay, well, then you know, bring it on up. And that was then delivered to Paul. Apparently it was delivered to Paul sometime late last summer or early fall. So he's had it a while then. It's not recently. Yeah. And a lot of people think that that's this Hoffner in the Now and Then video. It, it has been confirmed that that is actually just one of the replicas. There's two main replicas of the 61 that were made by the Hoffner folks. He has a few Hoffner bases, shall we say. At least half a dozen. Yes. The two Prime 64 ones, he's got two replicas of the 61 one, and he's got at least two of the uh, Union Jack, the Queen's Jubilee Hoffners. He's got the one that the producer for the Rolling Stones gave to him as well, and now he's got his original one back. The one with the fuzz built into the unit. Nice. So he could do Think for Yourself now without having to use pedals. That is true. That is what's up with McCartney, and you know he put out the usual sorts of, oh, gee, we're happy, we're so glad we got it back. The interesting thing about those replicas as opposed to the original, now that they've seen the original, the original had a rounded back. All of the replicas always had a flat back. We also learned that the sunburst, the later sunburst, was part of the repairs that Paul had done in the mid-60s to that base. Right, okay, which is why it looks different. They shellacted hard, apparently. Right. Okay. That's not going to do the wood any good either. Which is kind of ironic because what were the Beatles into in the late 60s? They were into stripping all the varnish off their instruments. And here was Paul bringing back his Hoffner, which was just lacquered to the gills. It had all the varnish that the other instruments had had removed. (laughs) There you go. So we don't know what's going to happen. Paul has said that he's going to get this bass restored, although he doesn't want it restored back to like new. So he wants it to stay in weathered condition, shall we say. Okay. If and when Paul tours again, I don't know if he's going to bring this bass out. He might. Yeah. I think it needs to be in a museum or something, or maybe the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But I also don't know if he's going to let it out of his sight again. But it's a good story, and I think we're all glad that it's back in Paul's hands. It has been evaluated at somewhere between 13 and $15 million <laughs> as the value of that 30-mark bass. A drop in the ocean. What is the percentage increase on that? (laughs) Oh, it helps if you had it in the hands of Paul McCartney. Yes, it does. um, Well, we may get it on McCartney 4. As we had mentioned, we are probably going to be getting a new record, if not this year, early next. So 
Yeah, he's still got some recording time. I would like if he does something with it for that record. Yeah, I think at the very least it will probably show up as one of the instruments that he's pretending to play on a video. For sure, and maybe even the cover. Just the bass would be fun as the cover of the next record. He's kind of going away from putting his own face on the cover of his records. Right. So just the 61 bass would be kind of a a fun cover for the next album. He'll make an offner nobody can refuse. (laughs) All right, so the... Other story we got this week is something that I don't think either of us were expecting. I certainly wasn't expecting this. I don't think anybody was. I'm kind of glad. I mean, I've been the one who's pushing for quite a while now that if they're going to do a fictionalized Beatles story, it kind of has to be a multi-part thing and, and, and i was pushing something like the crown which is not the way they decided to go to me thinking about it it's almost a bit like the, the letters from iwo jima and um flags of our fathers how you've got two stories that are going on at the same time but from different perspectives and it almost gives me that sort of idea so you've got the four films about each of the beatles but they're looking at the story from each one of those Beatles' perspective. Is Have I got that right? We haven't said what it is. What was announced oh. was that Apple has gotten together with Sony and they have licensed likenesses, life stories, and Beatles music for what is going to be a series of four films to come out in 2027. Wow. The director is, is Sam Mendez. Again, they are keeping up their tradition of finding fine film directors to do their projects. Yes. American Beauty is wonderful. And if there's some of those artistic touches, I will be very glad. Yes. And even though I'm not so much of a fan of the Daniel Craig films, I think Sam Mendes's direction in them is really good. There's another Beatles and Bond relationship. It's time for volume two of that book. There we go. So what Mendez said is, I'm honored to be telling the story of the greatest rock band of all time and excited to challenge the notion of what constitutes a trip to the movies. They haven't announced exactly how they're going to do these four films, just that there are going to be four films. And and as you said, each film is going to be from the perspective of one of the Beatles. Yeah, which is interesting. If I was releasing this... I'd probably do it four separate times over the year, possibly with two or three months between each. What I want to know is, are they going to use the same four actors across all four films? It, it would be kind of cool and kind of representative if, like, John and Paul in the George film were played by different actors who played John and Paul in the John and Paul films. Right. Hmm. I'm assuming that they will be filmed around the same time and... To make things easier, I'd film them with the same actors personally. You only have to put up the sets once. That's true. 2027 is only three years away. Four major motion pictures, considering that none of the four have apparently been written, that's going to be awfully difficult. That's why I said that if it was me, I would film them concurrently with the same actors because then you could basically film scenes at the same time from different angles to get the different perspectives in their different respective films. But for them to memorize all that dialogue and then to do it differently. Okay, this is George's perspective. Paul, I want you to sound a little bit angry at him here. 
Whereas you, you go you go to the McCartney version. Okay, Paul, you know, you just have your normal sort of happy-go-lucky tone of voice for this. George, you need to be a bit angrier at this version than you were in the version for your own film. And so, you know, maybe Mendez is good enough to keep all of that in his head, but that sort of Rashomon is difficult to pull off well. Yes. I'm surprised they didn't go the way of having four different directors. Unless he just figures out, here are the sets of scenes that I need to direct. Once we get the primary version down, I I will let other people do the B versions. B, C, and D versions. Yep, second and third units. Yeah. They aren't telling us how they're doing this. They're just telling us that, oh, this agreement has been signed. Watch this space, because Lonnie Pena has apparently hinted that he's trying to get involved. His daughter actually works in the entertainment industry. She lives out in Los Angeles, as we have mentioned on several occasions. And, well, if they are going to start hiring for post-production people, Lonnie has said to his daughter, gee, you might want to get in on this. Yes. I think the earliest we're out from any post-production is at least a full year. Assuming that they got scripts and they started filming sometime mid to late this year, it would be spring of next year before they have anything that they could start cutting together and and doing many posts on. They will need a very big post-production team to be able to work on four films at the same time as well. And for those who are wondering whether... Sam Mendes can do actual Honest to Goodness Humans. He won a Tony for a Broadway thing called The Layman Trilogy. Oh, yes. Yes, he did. That is a Broadway stage show about the Layman brothers. He's used to looking at real people in a very specific way. Yeah, and of course, with his history in theatre, he will have worked on multiple productions at the same time as well. I personally am voting for... At least some different actors, because I've got a soft spot for fake Beatles, uh, as I've mentioned on this show several times. You know, I just like to see how either good or cheesy they manage to make them. Yeah. That is coming, and I'm sure that over the next several years, we will hear more about it. The one set of folks who are probably unhappy about this news is the folks behind Midas Man, the Brian Epstein biopic, which is coming out supposedly later this year. But why would they be upset? We've got a Beatles biopic, and that's stealing all of our thunder. Okay. And people are already complaining about just the pre-production shots. It's like, that looks nothing like George, and they're sitting around with an orange amp, and orange amps weren't invented until 1969. I'm sorry, but have these people not seen the Linda McCartney story? (laughs) (laughs) And we've done a show on that, which you can go back and find. That was a CBS television thing, and that was a completely different class of project. It's like one of the subsidiaries of uh, Hallmark decided just to make something up on the spot. But they had good actors in that. and Yes. And for whatever reason, they decided not to use the name Alan Klein, even though Klein was long dead, and they referred to him as Grossman throughout that whole thing. It's like, where did you come up with that? Hmm, where did that come from? I wonder. (laughs) I think they probably talked to somebody. It's like, well, the Klein family has an established reputation of suing, so we better change the script. Yeah. Hmm. All right, so on to our main topic for this week. We are looking at... McCartney, the Life in Lyrics podcast season two, which has just begun. 
an interesting listen it is for a variety of reasons. We had spoken of the oddness of the way they are distributing it. Depending on when you pick it up, if you're picking up the free version, I mean, I paid the seven bucks, so I got all of the episodes downloaded and listened to in their proper format. But if you go on to Apple Podcasts, each download will only list a single title, but it will have two episodes in it. But those episodes... seem to be distributed at random. Yes. The first week, there was only... Love Me Do. And then the second week, there was Band on the Run. So they at that time, it was either Love Me Do, Band on the Run, or Band on the Run, Love Me Do. But as the third and subsequent episodes come out, I think when you download it, it just will just sort of automatically append, or post-pend, I suppose, one of the other episodes to whatever you've downloaded to listen to. Yeah. So, I mean, I should just have listened to them when they came out, really. That would have been better. Rather than wait. Or pay the seven bucks and just binge it or download the entire set off of Pushkin. It's worth it. There are no ads, although the ads are not overwhelming. It's just that you get two episodes in each download. I ended up listening to the first episode, Love Me Do, and then the episode finished, and it was about halfway through the time, and I thought, that's a bit strange because... You've got all the end music and the credits and, and all that. And then you've got adverts. And then all of a sudden, an episode started about Maxwell's Silver Hammer, which is episode three. So it's very odd, yes. And then the second episode of Band on the Run, the after that you've got, was Love Me Do at the end of that? Yes, it was. But if you downloaded it now, is just as likely to have one of the others. They are clearly randomly choosing one of the season two episodes. If they're going to do that, I kind of wish they'd gone and postpended one of the season one episodes. Yeah, with a song that complements the one that they've discussed, maybe. Now, as to the 12 episodes they've chosen... They're not quite as interesting as the first batch. They don't really have anything approaching current day McCartney. No. They're all Beatles and Wings tracks. Silly Love Songs is the latest song that they've got in the batch here. I sort of wished that they'd carry on with this series and hoped that they might record some more chat about songs more recent, perhaps. Well, I mean, they... Haven't said there won't be a third series, but they do kind of give you a hint there. Without spoiling things too much, the final episode of series two is the end. And it's like, yeah, I'm not sure that they're going to continue on after that. A bit on the nose. But they haven't said that they're not going to. And as you have noted, they got a lot of really good ratings, you know, downloads. It's one of the top downloaded shows last year, season one was. If they can do more episodes, and they certainly can, I hope it's a consideration. It also may be that Paul Muldoon is just busy. I mean, another hope of mine would be if they did do a third season to perhaps include some of the chat about songs that weren't included in the books. Even if they don't record anything new from McCartney, you know they've got stuff that they didn't use, which is there. Even if it's not quite enough to get a full story out of, you can tell little anecdotes. Yeah. One of the things I really appreciate, you can hear the dings of the MPL elevator, so we know that they're sitting there talking in Paul's office. Yes. We know that the elevator is just outside of Paul's door, and if his door is open, you can hear the elevator, and here, periodically, you can hear that elevator ding go off. The chats were just general chats, and they weren't intended 
for this purpose. That's why the sound isn't pristine and doesn't sound like a studio because that wasn't the intention. In some instances, it would be nice if you'd hand those tapes off to our friends in Australia and let them sort of bring out Paul's voice a little bit. Because sometimes it does get a little bit muffled. He can de-ding it like he did with, with the cutlery at, and the pots. No, no, at, I, um, I don't want it de-dinged. I love, I love having those MPL elevator dings in there. Okay. No, I don't want that removed uh, unless there's some, Paul saying something underneath that, I mean, which, which he might be. So it gives you a little bit of atmosphere knowing that, yeah, gee, we're actually in Paul's office here. Season two, episode one, the first episode is... Is love me do of course it's funny because you would have thought that that would have been the first episode of season one who knows and again they may have planned it for earlier and then it's like oh well we want to switch this up and switch that up and so it kind of ended up here rather than somewhere in the first season if they'd have planned it well enough they could have planned it around the time that now and then came out because of it being the b-side to now and then and that may well be the reason it's here in this spot as well Even though it's not perfectly timed, it's closely enough timed. So Paul claims that the Beatles used to do Hey Baby, that John would play the harmonica and Paul would sing it. It could be one of those songs that they did, that they pulled out when they were in Hamburg because of how long they were playing for. They could have just thrown it in there, a a basic version of the song, just as a throwaway. It could be that John's playing the harmonica. He had the harmonica out, he was playing it. What else can we do that uses the harmonica? I could also see that as being kind of a cavern when the lights are out kind of song yeah george has to go and fix the electricals again what can we do oh okay we can play hey baby regardless while they may have played it it was not a primary cover that they did i mean it certainly wasn't part of the hamburg set they never did it on the bbc so if they learned it and they played it just for fun that was kind of it it was just for fun it wasn't like oh we're going to make this one of our primary showcases shout to mark lewis and just in case he knows if there's a version available somewhere hidden away well i'll have to go pull out my copy of beatles live and by the way mark lewis is interviewed on the beatles books podcast check it out if you haven't he's talking about his own career and includes a healthy chunk of stories about the beatles live book which is still one of my favorite lewis and books of all time yeah, well done to Joe for such a great episode. McCartney continues on. You know, instruments come in sort of vogues. I mean, you think of skiffle. Yes. Guitar was was like a harmonic. It was what everyone got for Christmas. It was what everyone got. And that then spawned the 60s revolution. I would have thought that everybody would have got an harmonica and a guitar for Christmas, personally. We know the story about how John got his harmonica. Learn to play a song on it and I'll give it to you. And John did as a young teenager. Well done, John. Paul continues talking about 24th Lynn Road and how he and John would arrange to meet up because neither his mother nor his father were there. I, I think he's probably mistaken. I think Mary was probably gone by then. Mary passed when Paul was, what, 14 or so? Yes, I, be- I believe so. I think his, my mom and dad wouldn't be there. I think that's kind of an exaggeration. I mean, Lewison does tell that in Tune In about how they would hang together and smoke tea out of Jim Mack's pipe. Yes. As an aside, a friend of mine, he and his wife have got two boys, and I think one year I ended up buying them a, a harmonica each, 
And then the following year, I think I bought them, I think, a xylophone and some other instrument. I must be incredibly popular at their house, let's just say that. (laughs) Well, at least you didn't buy them a kit of drums. No, they were already playing their father's drums at that point. (laughs) Rather than going directly into Love Me Do, Muldoon spent some time talking with Paul about the songs that he wrote at the time that he and John wrote together at 24th and Road. I've got my guitar here. It's like uh, they say that our love is just fun The day that our friendship begun Well, there's no blue moon that I can see There's never been in history Because our love was just fun Okay, just fun. So Wow. We would go there showing each other stuff we'd written already, then writing new stuff together. It's like, oh, okay. Some of the ones he named were, were interesting. Uh, just fun, which we've heard him talk about before. And we've heard a variation of that as well a few times. Mm-hmm. Well, a few of them. There's no blue moon that I can see. There's never been history. He does kind of sing the tune a little bit. You know, he, he goes, he's got this countryish beat, and he, he kind of scats the tune slightly. Yeah, yeah. What, what, what sort of country artist do you think it's similar to? Maybe Hank Williams? Maybe. He continues with the Too Bad About Sorrows, which is kind of, we've only ever gotten him singing just the title. I don't think we ever had him give any of the verses ever. Too bad about I don't feel so bad now because I was about to say that if anybody wants to anger, draw and quarter me, I've never heard that song and that would be wise because there isn't a version out there. There may be half of a verse in Get Back somewhere, but but it's mostly whenever Paul mentions it, he just kind of goes, too bad about sorrows, you know, slightly Sinatra-ish. Yes. Oh, they could have got Sinatra to do it. He might have preferred it to suicide. <laughs> Paul talks about that he had this blue school book, and that was what he used to write the lyrics, and it was always at the top of the page was another Lennon-McCartney original. Is this one of the books that was lost in the cleanup with Jane? No. He says he had it recently while they were recording. So oh, Of course. My guess is this is the same book that he had written his play in. You remember he and John had written a musical and oh yes in the promotion for the photographs book he mentions that they actually found the dialogue that we'd written for this musical and I would guess that is all in that same notebook 
And so after they did the interview for this episode, someone found it. I don't know that for a fact, but I would guess that. Yeah. His story was, oh, I put it in the bookshelf and I've lost it again, but... Yeah, and then uh, in the promotion for the photography book, was it? He was saying that um, one of his assistants discovered it and said, "Did you know that we found this?" That's why my guess is that's that same book. Yeah, that also had one after nine oh nine. In I would have thought, even though yep. that's that's a John song. Muldoon continues after the Lennon McCartney references. You do realize it at the time, and you know Paul goes, "Well, you know we'd heard Gilbert and Sullivan." Rogers and Hammerstein, which we spoke of last week because, you know, that was actually mentioned on the second Sullivan show. Yes, that's true. Lieber, Stoller, and Goffin and King. Type names. Well, these were magic names to us. We didn't realize Goffin and King was Carol King. Mm-hmm. Didn't realize it was a girl. Mm-hmm. And an amazingly young woman. I Very young. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was thrilling to know that there were these people out there, and this is what we wanted to be. And they talk a little bit about Carol King. Yes. Uh, although they don't mention the story of meeting Carol King at a party in 64 when they were probably that Los Angeles party. Yes. She has a story about how John was kind of awful to her. And then Paul had to go mm. clean up the mess. There may be a reason why that wasn't mentioned. <laughs> that is in Carol King's biography. And that's okay because she forgave John and they became friends in the 70s. That's good to know. There's also a story about them going to the movies together and having to leave before the film was over because John could not be there when the lights came on. Okay. They got in his green station wagon and went back to the Dakota and had an evening together. Oh, nice. But maybe not so nice because... Uh, Carol King was with her abusive husband at that point in time. Not Jerry, her her second husband. Okay. She had stories about John having to lecture Carol's husband. Right. I noticed they mentioned the influence of the Everly brothers. was quite heavy on them as well. Which is actually part of a segment on the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show. And I like the collection of people that Paul mentions. Jeff Johns being the current manager of Apple Records. Bruce Springsteen, and David Letterman. Right. Yep, David Letterman. All of whom said that their lives changed that night. David Letterman says that. And that how they sort of learned what they wanted to be. As Paul describes it, they formed their futures that night. I liked that. And so Paul then goes on. They all formed on that night. Formed this this future for themselves. And there we were in Liverpool forming this future in the same kind of deal thought that was a nice turn of phrase. All these great songwriting duos who wrote songs for others to sing, and singers like the Everly Brothers who sang other people's songs. I've always thought that their two vocals together on Love Me Do have almost got an Everly Brothers sort of feel to it anyway. It hangs through all of the early Mersey Beat songs. I mean, Please Please Me for sure is straight out of the Everly Brothers. Yeah. I like this description in particular, Paul saying that everybody has a hero and that you start out by imitating that hero. It's the fake it till you make it kind of idea, but is also what the late Neil Ennis would describe as ruddling. Everybody's a ruddle because what it means to ruddle is to imitate somebody until you can come up with something completely original. There's that other quote from Paul, isn't there? You know, to this day, I just think that the Everleys were the greatest, two good-looking guys, and that it was good. I love the fact that 
That's what he mentions. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they, they were great musicians, and, and they could harmonize incredibly well, but they were two great-looking guys. All about the image. <laughs> <laughs> then that turns to a bit of a discussion on Buddy Holly, one of our favorites. Yep, one of our favorites, absolutely. Paul tells the story we've all heard before. that The crickets didn't know about the double meaning. They didn't know about the game. Yeah, and an interesting thing there with Buddy is, you know, that Buddy was there with playing with the glasses, wearing the glasses at the same time. But John used to purposely remove his glasses and could barely see without his glasses on. But I mean, that's part of the thing about John Lennon's stage presence. That squint is crucial to the way he people react to him. Okay. Yes, it gave him a sort of look, didn't it, that was maybe attractive to women? <laughs> I would say that's the case, but I mean, Paul's also described that in the past, that John, when and if he wanted to, he could put on his glasses and see the world, even on stage. He was a big influence, wasn't he? Because Paul was saying that, you know, not only did he play guitar, but he was the guy playing the solos as well, which was very rare for a lead singer in a group at that point, because it'd be the other guitarist, the... Um, Oh, the lead the, guitarist, usually, The lead yes. guitarist. He mentioned Scotty Moore by name, didn't he, and said... Buddy Holly, to us, was amazing for a number of reasons. He sang and played guitar. Elvis just sang and Scotty Moore played guitar. Saying that, Chuck Berry was the lead guitarist for Chuck Berry. And Chuck Berry wrote his own stuff, but... Chuck Berry was black and Buddy Holly was white. I mean, that probably meant something to him as a difference, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Paul saying, this was like an all-inclusive one-man band, and we thought this was great. You would, with some of those recordings that came out after his passing. Essentially, some of those recordings have got a fair bit of instrumentation by Buddy on them because they recorded at home in, in, in some some cases. The thing about some of the overdub, the Fireballs overdubs on the apartment tapes is they don't fit because it doesn't sound like Buddy playing the lead. No. That's true. As opposed to the first season, we've gone a halfway, maybe a little bit more than halfway through this episode, and we really haven't talked all that much about Love Me Do. Yeah, I've noticed that a lot in this season. Unlike season one, there's more talk about other things than the actual song itself. There's more anecdotes, essentially. As we move on to Band on the Run, episode two is also very much that way. It's almost about the whole album rather than just the one song. When you get to the Band on the Run, it's about how wings were created. So you had to have this, this, this and this. And then we got to recording Band on the Run, the third Wings album. And it's like, okay, it's like the history of wings thrown in there and a little bit about the song. There's very little about Band on the Run actually mentioned. We get some about Love Me Do. Now that we're actually getting into the song, I like that Paul is, he loves it, but he's slightly slagging it off. Yeah. It's so simple. I mean, you well, look at it now. It here. Yes. There's nothing to it. Uh-huh. It's a will-of-a-wisp uh-huh. little song. John yeah. would do that, of course. I mean, you know. Yeah. There's that great interview clip where they're talking about Beatles songs, and it's like... Oh, yeah, well, remember, this was a time when we thought Love, Love Me Do was a great song. Yeah. I mean, you've got two schools of thought there, haven't you? I mean, you've got the famous saying, what is it, keep it simple, stupid, with songwriting in some ways. But then again, this is the beginning of the Beatles. So as with all groups and all musicians, you'll start in one place and then the hope is that you graduate from there, as we've found on top of most. 
each successive song is the next level up. You know, after he kind of spends some time sliding it off, then he says, as you just indicated, that it's bluesy and that it has a simplistic nature and that he likes that simplicity. Down home on the porch, two guitars and a little harmonica. And a very nice laid-back bit of drumming from Ringo there that doesn't get in the way. There was this marvellous rock and roll future unfolding itself, and you were about to become part of it. So your longings... I like that as a description as well. Yes. We kind of start fading toward the end here. Not quite, but uh, almost the point of being in this rock and roll world was to avoid real life. Paul's story about, what was it? I was about to go to teacher training college and I wanted to put that off forever. (laughs) Then he continues with what kind of drew him and John together. The fact that both their mothers had died and we understood the anguish, largely unspoken. Being young boys, you didn't talk about it much, but all of this spilled out, which is the best way to write. Now he's kind of saying, yeah, well, I mean, there's a little bit more to this than we let on. Well, you can understand that. Oh, they would have that sort of relationship because of that. And it made them understand each other, which probably made creativity a lot easier together. Well, and that also probably then played into the way they harmonized together. It is that mental understanding which allowed them to sing so well together. Yes, like brothers do in groups like the Bee Gees and singing groups like that, that have that close harmony that works perfectly. Which brings us back to the Everleys. Yes. So Paul now continues with more, I mean, again, it's not so much Love Me Do, it's just kind of, what are we doing? Oh, we were trying to get money. You know, yeah. why are we writing songs? And again, referencing back to the whole Goffin and King, Lieber and Stoller thing. It's like, oh, people can do that. We can do that. It may not buy us love, but it could buy us a car. Wow. A variation on what we've heard him say from the 60s. Oh, we're going to ride a swimming pool. <laughs> Writing a swimming pool. That's a nice thought. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't just the money. It was the joy. We were just feeding the machine. They had some nice other tunes in this as well. I really like the false start for One After 909. And we also get a bit of take one if I want to hold your hand. Yeah. I was wondering when they were going to slip in some of that anthology 63 one after 9 or 9, and they did find a way to get that in there. Yeah. This is kind of a haphazard episode. They've just kind of thrown in a lot of things which are kind of about Love Me Do, but not really. Paul talks about being in the recording studio, how they would have two sessions and were expected to finish two songs within those two, three-hour sessions. That takes some doing, I I will say. (laughs) The great thing about this is is that you were done by 5.30. But you had to be there for 10 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) Yeah, well, but that's okay. 10 to 5.30 is seven and a half hours. You got an hour and a half in the middle for a break. When they got to doing it their own time, they were in the studio for 10, 12, 14 hours at a time. Yes. I, I used to work in the studio for those sort of hours recording, and I actually made a stupid mistake and tried to give myself a bit of a challenge So I booked two days in a studio with those same sort of hours. And I thought, oh, I'm pretty sure I could go in there with nothing at all and create two songs each day from thin air and record them and finish them. And did you come close? I ended up with one song, I think, with lyrics, and then the other three ended up being musical interlude-type pieces. 
ditties, shall we say. Yes, ditties, yeah. And then off to the end of the episode, again, we're talking about the harmonica. They play a, a really nice commercial from KLIF. KLIF was a Dallas radio station and was the sister station to and had shared ownership with the rock and roll station here in town, here in Houston. Right. Paul concludes with what is now the famous 200 miles to go story uh, that Mal Evans and, and the boss uh, turning over and, and how they had to keep warm and, and well something will happen. I noticed that as well that story came out again. And so the last thing we get out of Paul something will happen became a mantra. A really good one. It's not reaching for it, it's letting it go. Which is, you know, also Again, that kind of refers back to some of the things we heard in the first season of Life and Lyrics, that, that the way to do things is to not try and do things. You have to concentrate, you have to do things, but you also have to just let it go. Yeah, but he also said, the more you reach, the more it will recede. Yeah, I mean, again, it's the same idea. Yeah. That you need to concentrate, you need to know what you're doing and be conscious about trying to do it, but not too much. Don't grab it too tightly. Yeah. Something will happen. So then we go into Paul Muldoon introducing episode two, Band on the Run, and they're playing the mess. In the next episode, McCartney starts over with a ragtag band on the run. I just thought, we'll just start something that feels good, and we'll build it up like the Beatles did. That made me think, that's not Band on the Run. (laughs) Exactly. All right, so on to episode two, Band on the Run. Does it open with the, the sound of rain exploding? There is a mighty crash. Pushkin. I mean, Wings was just the result of me asking myself, am I going to stop now that the Beatles have stopped? Am I going to go be a carpenter or something? It's like, no, well, I don't want to do that. I'm going to do something. And that's something else I'm going to do is still going to be in music. Yep. Like I said, this seems to be an episode more about the formation of Wings and the story of Wings up to... Up to an including band on the run. I love the next part, the last part here before the intro... So I was with Linda, I said, do you fancy starting a band? And she said, yeah. Well, she paused, she wasn't that quick. I like that he's telling that. I mean, that's something else that he's kind of been a little bit reticent. Even in like the wingspan, it's always like, oh yeah, well, I asked Linda and Linda said, sure, let's do it. And we went off and formed this band. It's like, well, she wasn't that quick. No. Not meant as an insult, just... She had to think it over for a little bit. Yeah. Paul says that the thing about that is that they would have to make their mistakes in public. As a lot of us do when we've been in bands playing. That's kind of the point that Paul will make, that the Beatles were kids who didn't know how to play their instruments at the beginning either. When they went to Scotland with Johnny Gentle... That was just the first step on a very long road. This episode... As a little bit about Band on the Run, the song, but the majority of it is not about the song Band on the Run. 
a lot of this is in the description in the life and lyrics, although there's some here that's not in the book, and there's actually quite a lot in the book that they chose not to include here. Yeah, I don't understand that. I mean, I've got the book at the side of me. I'm not going to quote from it or anything, but yeah. Again, I'm so glad we have the paperback version to read along with because the hardback version was so difficult to have to pull out and find the lyrics and figure out what he was saying. But Muldoon and McCartney continue on that the early 70s was an era of gangsters, outlaws, and desperados. Yeah. When was the song Band on the Run written? Do we know? Well, I mean, we know that some of the pieces existed as early as the Ram Sessions. They hint at the song Desperado by the Eagle. They more than hint at it. I mean, they actually play a little bit here. Yeah, they play a bit of it. And I thought, hmm, if the song was written or started to be written around the Ram era and he'd already got this band on the run sort of idea going, that would have been a year and a half to two years before the song Desperado actually came out. Which is why he kind of mentions other things and that being a vibe at the time yeah if i had to guess he probably didn't come upon the final lyrics until as we approached the rehearsals for the man on the run you know before they went out to lagos yeah it may have been this little bit and that little bit and he may have had rain exploded with a mighty crash or rabbits on the run but how they fit together it's like okay here's just some lyrics and here's just this bit of tune although saying that there is an interesting fact about the Desperado album by the Eagles, which mm-hmm. is that it was produced by Glyn Johns around the same time that he was going to produce Red Rose Speedway. I do kind of like Paul saying, well, we were kind of Desperados. And it's interesting when you then tie that into the whole pot thing, which he's almost but not quite saying. Yes. Very clever with our uh, words, that bit. The thing is, you know, with... The pot situation. We were outside the law in a very mild way. At this point, certainly at the point we're talking about, into the Ram sessions, pot bust would have been on Paul's mind. Absolutely. But yeah, he's also saying that the band were on the run, as in the band being on tour as well. That's another way of them being on the run. The two meanings. Before we quite leave the first meeting of a band on the run the band of outlaws and a scene of captivity he talks about desperado but what that statement brings to mind for me is hotel california yes that's another one which while not obviously a similar song it's a song about being captured and trying to break out of someplace yes absolutely then paul moves on to The other meaning, the idea of a band on the run being a musical band going out there. Paul is again enjoying, I don't think it's his lunch. It doesn't sound like he is having a full meal, but he's certainly having a little snack while he's talking to Paul Muldoon here. Paul likes to snack while he's talking with people. I've noticed that. If you're thinking about this as a musical band out on the road, everyone's looking for us, but they're never going to catch us, which... Kind of reminded me of you know Venus and Mars, the, the double meaning thing, where yeah. you got the planets and then you got Venus and Mars being Paul and Linda. Of course, yep. I still like that footage of them in New Orleans with that one. It's where Paul's trying not to tell them anything about the album, and then Linda says, "But Venus and Mars are all right tonight." Paul Muldoon then takes that psychological leap, which we like to do sometimes here on this show. It's not a band on the run from 
Beetledom, is it? It gives Paul a chance to once more get back into the Wings story. Yes. Now he's explaining the history of Wings. What was it? Wings was the next step after the Beatles. You either try and get yourself a supergroup, Blind Faith with Ginger Baker, or Zeppelin a little bit, or you ask a couple mates to get on a bus and you don't fuss about it, which is kind of a simplification. But You're going to expect them to suddenly go into a bit of go now by the Moody Blues and, and introduce Denny Lane. So Denny Lane comes into the story. So I knew Denny. We toured with the Moody's, which we know he did, and uh, we know that that was because of their nam's relationship yep they were managed by the same people so i knew i got on with him he was first well no he wasn't first linda was first then denny <laughs> and then we auditioned people for ram if you want to read a really great story about how paul got the ram band mccartney legacy i'm so glad that we are getting closer to volume two probably end of this year 2024 or early next alan cozen is well into writing volume two as we speak i can't wait i'm really looking forward to that but, um, i have an interesting thought that i've had about this with the wings formation we're going there again with this so he did ask hugh at one point didn't he apparently hugh mccracken so i'm wondering if hugh mccracken was actually intended to be the lead guitarist but denny lane was still supposed to be in Wings. I'm wondering if that was always the intention, to have two guitarists. Well, I mean, you know, the, the chronology is a little bit strange of what members he really wanted for Wings. I mean, Denny was not part of Ram. No. And really the idea of a band seemed to have come out of Ram. So, I mean, he's being slightly disingenuous here. Denny wasn't second. Yeah. It was Paul, Linda, and the band. Denny Sywell may have been the first musician that he then brought into the band. But Denny Lane, he didn't come until much, not much later, but slightly later in the story. Yeah, unless... Unless he was thinking about it, and it's like, oh, well, you know, well, I'll finish this record, and, and then I'll call up Denny, which is a possibility. I'm wondering if he was contractually obligated to do the Ram album, but he was already thinking of the band aesthetic at that point and possibly already putting feelers out that way and did the Ram album, and then went back to this band idea that he'd got before going to do the Ram album. Because Paul does that sometimes. He'll start work on a project, and then he'll go to another project and come back to that project, because he did that with Chaos and Creation and Memory Almost Full. Well, and wasn't Denny still involved and tied up with balls at that point in time? So, I mean, um, there may have been a legal issue as well. Maybe. Uh, it was certainly, we know that Denny owed an album to his previous management, which didn't get taken care of for quite a while. No. We continue on with the Wings story that the whole thing about Wings was that we're not going to do any Beatles songs. Yeah. His statement there is, uh, again, slightly, gee, I don't know how correct this is. There hadn't been a girl in the Beatles, so it was all the opposite. How does that make it all the opposite? No. It was just a group of men and one of them, well, because there were four of them at this point, there was a girl instead of one of the men, maybe? It's an odd statement to make. I mean, I can kind of see where Paul got that in his head, but I, okay. It's not like he went the way of Fleetwood Mac a few years later when they'd have two women. <laughs> Followed by the famous on-the-road story, when he got his Hoffner stolen. Yep, this is it. As he's described it elsewhere, a whacking big great bag of 50 peas. Yeah. <laughs> 
One for you and two for me. Yes. Reminds me of the days of having 50 pence pieces on top of an electric meter back in the day in a gas meter. I like that he says, you know, some of those shows must have been quite bad. You know, he keeps saying that, but that live concert footage, that album that came with... With the Wings Wildlife box, that is killer. And the performances in Bruce McMouse. Wings was, it was a slightly tattier band but it was very much a rocking outfit i think that's helped by the other person that we've not mentioned yet when he mentions henry mcculloch because he was very rocky with his guitar dare i say a bit dirty (laughs) he kind of tells a variation on the story that that he likes to tell Oh, oh we had 11 songs so we had to repeat some of them his normal end of that story as well we pretended they were requests Betty at the back says, can you play wildlife? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Newcastle City Hall, where apparently Linda forgot the opening chords to wildlife. Yep, we've heard that story before as well. Yep, but... um, But again, he tells it a little bit differently here. Linda had the intro on keyboard. Uh Sequence of chords. Um, I said, thank you, Newcastle. It was Newcastle City Hall. I do a song now, new song called called Wildlife. Wildlife. One, two, three. One, two, three. Nothing. I look over and Linda's just frozen. I go, one, two, three, one. Thing she hasn't heard the counter. So I go over. Now the crowd are kind of wondering whether this is just a bit of theatrics. Well, I go over to Linda, she can't remember the chords. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know. So, I mean, actually, if this had been a sketch, it would be quite funny. So I go over, well, I can't remember the bloody chords. What don't you? Well, luckily, seeing me do it, she suddenly remembered. So she pushed me to one side, and we started. Those were the kind of chaotic moments. He's told variations on that, but I think this is the first time he's told it in this fashion. It's not a new story, but it's also not quite an old story. Possibly because they're unaware, like I said before when we've spoken about these shows, they're not aware that these recordings are going to be used for this reason. So there's a bit more of a natural pull there as opposed to the other pull. That other guy, as he likes to call him. Yeah. Again, putting down that era of wings, we got away with it, but only just. I think that they actually sounded really good. There were certainly moments I've heard all of the available tapes from that tour, and there were moments where they didn't sound great. It wasn't ever terrible. Every band has a dud. For sure. And then he talks a little bit more about Linda and how Linda's strength wasn't necessarily the keyboards. It was as a cheerleader, as the one to get the crowd going, which is kind of an interesting thing, and and I don't think I've ever heard him quite say that before. And that would well last until... Linda, you know, stopped touring in the 90s. The other bit that he says about Linda, I'm really glad that he actually said this exactly. His words were, she was a damn good singer, even though she was an amateur. And he's right. Everybody says the magic of Wings was their three voices together, Paul, Linda and Denny. 
Well, and Pete Townsend has on the record said that Linda was the secret ingredient of Wings. Linda's voice was what made Wings work. Yeah. Again, Paul is kind of out there, again, talking about the end of the Beatles. And after the Beatles, who's going to be as good as them? Maybe not us, but we could be something else. And this is a story that you had mentioned that, oh, when the Beatles started out, they were all amateurs. And he talks about a story we've heard before about the crowd throwing pennies at them at Stroud. Oh, yes. Yeah. So now we finally get into Band on the Run, the song, and we're kind of like two-thirds of the way through this episode. Yeah. It's like one of those lesser Star Trek episodes where you get like 10, 15 minutes of chit-chat and then suddenly something happens that the, the episode's all about. I like Paul's observation here. We're very insecure as a race, an animal. I've seen rabbits. They live a life of terror. We're looking over our shoulders, too, and that leaves a not-so-generous spirit. Slag someone off. Makes you feel not so bad. The more secure you get, the more generous you can become. That's really a pretty deep observation. By 1973, Wings was finding its groove. But McCartney had yet to win back music critics since the breakup of The Beatles. This third studio album, Band on the Run, would be Wings' chance to establish themselves and McCartney's chance to prove he still had a long career in front of him. That album that they were going to make, the Band on the Run album, this is even before two members left, uh, he says that the album was a chance for the band to prove themselves, essentially. Not all members of the band felt the same. The night before they were set to start recording, drummer Denny Sywell and guitarist Henry McCulloch rang up McCartney to tell him they wouldn't be coming. I was like, furious. That's not very band-like. Again, he's telling his version of the story. (laughs) Again, like we were talking about the four films, if you had a Wings film, you would definitely have two different movies if we're talking about Denny Seiwell's point of view and Paul McCartney's point of view. Yeah. Well, we're going to get to that. We're going to promote Alan Cozen yet again because he tells this story very well. For anybody interested, there's a really good episode of my show where I spoke with Alan for almost two hours. And actually, as of right now, if you're in the States, the hardback is on sale at Amazon for like 15 bucks. Very cheap. Very much worth it. So they talk about going to Lagos. I like Paul's offhanded. Doesn't everyone? (laughs) Well, wouldn't you go there if you had the chance, Ed? (laughs) I'd go to Jamaica first, I think. You might meet some seaside woman there. (laughs) Being in the land of African music will have some nice influence, which, of course, Paul had to spend a significant chunk of time in Lagos telling them, I'm not being influenced by you. I'm just here to record. Yep, I'm here to record. We can do it all in, in the UK, but we're not going to. We're going to come all the way out here, but not be influenced by your music at all. Not quite that, but none of those influences are going to find their way into this record. Seriously. No. Do they? Well, Mamounia certainly has some at least nominal African influence, I would say. He's got some definite percussive, almost African-style percussive in there in Mamounia, yeah, definitely. It's not hugely influenced by African music, but I think there's a touch of it there on band. On It's not Graceland. Now they then go back to the band, as Paul describes it, leaving them on the evening of when they're getting ready to go. Yep, the night before... 
on the night before. <laughs> but uh, that's not how it happened. Didn't Denny Sywell actually say that it was a couple of weeks before? Uh, maybe a week. There's that story about them going out and having a drink and then that being several days before Paul took off. So I think he probably told them about a week before. Yeah, and Henry had already gone, I think, but before that, I think Denny yeah. says. This is more Paul telling a story. This one, I kind of think he has convinced himself that's the way it actually went down. Yeah. I think he genuinely doesn't remember how it actually was, and this is a better story. We've hinted at the fact that sometimes it will go towards what is the better story as opposed to what really went down in a few instances, really. I like what... Paul says here, again, when describing his own character, just because he's saying something that we all already knew. I like to stick with the plan. Screw you. I'm going to make this the best record I've made to date. <laughs> and, I mean, that is how he responds to things. And then Paul says that they would go over and it would just be Paul, Linda, and Denny doing what they did. I mean... I thought that Denny did more than just guitar work. Yeah, I mean, he certainly played some of the percussion and some of the other instrumentation. I would have thought so. I mean, Denny is a very good keyboard player as well. A very capable musician, yes. Uh, yeah, capable on a lot of instruments. Uh, he discusses something which we have talked about before, that there was actually no glass in the studio and that they had to help construct the studio there in, in Lagos. Yep, they, they even built the vocal booth that didn't exist as well before that point, didn't they, they said. So Paul continues, anybody else might have given up. The studio was only half-built. Half-built studio is still a studio. Then he tells yet another slightly different version of the We Got Mugged story. He does talk about the demos being stolen, but he's not saying that they were the only copies of those demos. It's just like, you know, I had cassettes with the demos on them and they stole them. They probably either chucked them away or recorded some African music over it. We still want those demos. Because we know they are in the MPL archives. We do. Then they make a callback, which I like. We'd been warned, but we didn't listen because we were desperados. Yep. Bring back the desperados bit again. There you go. Do you think uh, it's a song that Paul's particularly fond of and he's trying to get some sales I, for the Eagle? That's a very McCartney-esque song. That's one that I wouldn't mind hearing someone AI Paul's voiceover. And it's kind of a McCartney-esque vocal. Oh, very nice. I like that idea. You could even AI John doing some harmony on that. Desperado could be turned into a Beatlesque song. Yes. Pull some of the tack piano from Rocky Raccoon. Hmm. Wow. So, anyway, that is for another time. Muldoon says, well, so did you have to start over from square one? Well, we remembered them well enough. Well, they seem to do. Maybe it's the lyrics to 1985 that they didn't remember. Well, I remember the song, but what were those lyrics again? Yep, that's a shout back to us talking about the underdub version that's come out because there are no lyrics on there at all. We can also have little conversations between episodes of the, of the show. You're not the only one, Paul McCartney and Paul Muldoon. Nope, that's true. That's true. <laughs> he said something about being left a message when he got back to EMI. I don't think he's ever mentioned that it was cholera. He has mentioned that when they got home and they started going through the mail, one of the things was a letter from EMI saying, under no circumstances should you go to Lagos. And I don't think he'd ever actually explicitly said why. He, here he says, there is a cholera outbreak. Yep. And the letter arrived after they had left to go there. Maybe Henry and Denny had the right idea. 
And I like as well that Paul points out that Band on the Run, somebody was saying that that was their introduction to Paul and that was their version of Sergeant Pepper. Yeah, he was talking to a reporter and, and you know, Paul was kind of making the, the Sergeant Pepper comments. Oh, you know, Sergeant Pepper is great. Sorry. And, and then the reporter went to him and said, well, you know, actually, Band on the Run was my record. Yeah. Then he goes all Owen Ling on us. Interesting fact, some people like Wings over the Beatles. Band on the Run, Jet. They have a special affection for that. I'm never going to be able to think of anything but Owen and his uh, <laughs> his commentary on wings. I do like Owen's hot takes. It makes everything interesting. <laughs> then we end with a little Mrs. Vanderbilt for some reason. Yeah, yeah, and and also mentioned of the world tour in 1976. Just mentioned offhand there's nothing else to it except just mentioning band on the run would make number two in the uk number one in the us and in 1976 they would go on to do a world tour so they would prove to everybody and then that was it episode over and i'm thinking okay yeah and so the next time maxwell silver hammer it's like okay there you go so we were gonna do more episodes but well we've been chatting on too long here the news seemed to have taken up our time Yes, but we needed to talk about that because they are both important. We will be back soon with certainly the next two episodes, which is Maxwell's Silver Hammer and then Yesterday. Fans of Toppermost should pay close attention to the uh, Yesterday episode. We think that someone within MPL may have been listening to us. Yes, I always feel like somebody's watching me. <laughs> no, 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 that's kitten her guy. Oh, yes. All right, so we will be back with that soon and other things. Talk to you soon. Take care. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. to season two of McCartney, A Life and Lyrics, starting February 7th. In the next episode... Maxwell's Silver Hammer. A cheerful song about a serial killer inspired by an obscure French avant-garde play. McCartney, A Life in Lyrics is a co-production between iHeartMedia, MPL and Pushkin Industries. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals. 
but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned out nice again. 